Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we have a special episode for you. Two weeks ago, we attended the Regenerative Agriculture and Food Systems Summit, organized by Kiasco Research to catalyze a regenerative transition in the food industry. The event was attended by large corporations such as Nestle, Unilever and Yara, as well as numerous companies and organizations that work actively with RegenAg on the ground. We attended the conference as media partners, as part of our mission to explore the different dimensions of regenerative agriculture, producing mini-interviews with a variety of summit attendees. The objective of this episode is to try and understand the value of the strategies being implemented by large corporations as well as the way in which technical and specialized companies are working to scale Regenag. Whilst many of you who work actively in this space may not feel aligned with some of the companies we have interviewed, we believe in, we believe in the value of having open and objective conversations with all players in the field, in order for us to form our own opinions. We believe that the food corporations, whether we like it or not, are hugely influential in the food system today and must be considered if we are to rapidly scale regenerative agriculture. So we had a fantastic time at the conference, and we would like to thank everybody who took time to talk to us, and we really hope that you enjoy the episode. Hello, Anne-Sophie. Thanks Hello, for talking Dimitri. to us today. Um, maybe you could tell us a bit about what's Pure Projet. Yes, Pure Projet is a B Corp. And we were founded in 2008, and we are a project developer involved in a nature-based solution project, so agroforestry, regenerative ag agriculture, and we work directly with uh, farming communities inside company supply chain. And our main um, focus is to address key corporate commitments such as SBTI while delivering, delivering a positive impact on the field regarding carbon, biodiversity, soil, water, but also human life uh, and how we produce the food uh, we need. Okay, amazing. That's really interesting. And when we were talking earlier on uh, in, the, in the hallway, you were telling us a bit about how, um, how Pro Project is working with changing the supply chain of these companies. And this is obviously a big theme that we're hearing about in this conference. So maybe you could tell us a bit more about how that works and how you're actually engaging with the larger companies in the supply chain. Yes, and uh, that's uh, really the major focus for, for us, say, supply chain mm. and working with farmers. So how does it start? Uh, it's first um, making sure that the commitment taking, taken by the company has a reality on the field and uh, meets the needs of the farming communities. So we do feasibility study on the ground, work directly with cooperative, with the farmers, to seek the interest of the farm, farming communities, to understand which uh, activities and intervention can be uh, implemented. So agroforestry, of course, but can be also training, creating tree nurseries, monitoring the impact, do um, additional um, activities regarding uh, social benefits or um, you know, the economy and market access. So it's all of that 
um, set of activities and interests from the farmer that we, we look during the feasibility study. And honestly, this is really a major point for success uh, of a project is to take time to understand the field and um, also draw some insights that you can then deliver to your um, client, to the company who wants to change uh, its supply chain. And, and another key factor of success to change a supply chain is also meet the company strategy. Um, because, you know, those investments are also very risky for the company, very complex. It takes time, money and resources, human people working on that. So it's important that everything that has been put on a project has also value for the company so meaning that the design of our project will meet for instance an SBTI uh, strategy so we um, put into action also other um, expertise that we have internally uh, regenerative agriculture expert um, that will work on soil testing carbon monitoring uh, various set of uh, monitoring activities that are able to to provide uh, KPIs measurable um, uh, results over time and another value we bring to the company uh, to secure their investment is to have people on the field. So on the field we always have Pure Projet, the methodology of Pure Projet, uh, the team and also um, we train uh, the cooperative technicians to build capacities on the field because of course one day we will leave uh, the area and what we want is to, um, you know, that the project um, remain and is taken over by the community. So capacity building also is important. That's very, very interesting stuff. You're basically acting like middlemen as well between, or middlemen, middlewomen, between the, the, the corporations or the larger companies and what's happening in the field. So I'm, I'm curious as to what's the value that the, these companies are, are, um, are seeing in creating regenerative projects. So what, what, you know, what's their motivation? And you, you're telling me also when we were talking a bit earlier on, you're saying that you know, you're really trying to focus on this value. What's valuable to them? So you know, could you tell us a bit more about what is that for them? Um, what we see is that most of the company, especially after COVID crisis, are aware of um, the challenge and the need to grow food in a sustainable way in particular a way that regenerates ecosystem. Um, so I would say that the starting point of a company is the same than any of the people working on that topic. Um, then the special value a company is seeking is measurable impact to, for their claim, for their carbon climate claim, but also all the type of claim that they do for the consumer. So they, they also want to prove that their action is real and also that the action is um, aligned with the stake we are facing, meaning can be scalable. It's not only a small impact, it can be a, it's a big project. And I think that company wants to see um, the level of positive contribution they have on the field. So when I say see, uh, it's a mix of um, uh, reporting KPIs, but also photo. Uh, field um, studies, um, interviews with farmers, so it can be very uh, various set of uh, proof 
um, that the company will uh, will seek. And then ultimately, I think that most of the companies wants to engage the whole supply chain. So they, f they were the pioneer and they develop a, a pilot project. But I think that especially in annual cropping system, the companies would like the other to join and also have an impact. It, it's complex, but I, I also see uh, companies asking us, can you find other companies able to invest with us and find a model that works for us and for our competitors or for other um, supply chain actors. Okay. So synergies is uh, an important uh, piece of the puzzle. Okay, that's really interesting. And, you know, one of the things that was discussed in, one, in, uh, in the last talk here was about uh, the economics of creating regenerative projects. And in your experience in your, um, um, with the projects that you've been working on, do you see um, investing in regenerative as being able to bring, for example, reducing costs or bringing more resilience to the companies that you're working with? Is there like an economic value beyond just communicating to customers and demonstrating to the world that they are you know actually investing in regeneration yes so it's not an economic value as we are used to it's not uh, a re pure return of, on investment it's more like um, uh, creating shared value for the, f the supply chain shared value for uh, yourself as a company because you will maybe reduce cost of managing your procurement reduce risk uh, regarding volumes and quality um, so obviously yes there is a return on investment in there there is also the brand image and the corporate uh, value to, to shareholder um, but in fact, what you, you will also bring to your supply chain is uh, its value rela related, for instance, let's say if you reduce fertilizer, it's, uh, you avoid cost on the field for the farmer. By funding rejag practices, you reduce the use of fertilizer, um, you reduce uh, the use of water, you will improve the quality. Um, even um, it has been said in recent study that the um, agronomic uh, quality of the project the product improves through Rejag. So you create multiple benefits and they have a monetary value. The only challenge today is that it's hard to put all of those shared value and net benefits into a single number. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Oh, that's fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for talking to us today and for taking the time to explain a bit more about Pure Projet. And if anybody else wants to find out more, where can we find more information about you? Um, so you can definitely visit uh, our website, but also if you are in Paris, come and say hi at our office. Uh, we are uh, uh, very uh, keen in uh, meeting uh, people. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Hello, Roberto, and uh, thanks for coming on and uh, talking to us uh, today. And maybe you can just give us a bit of an intro as to, as to a very short one as to who you are and then we'll understand a bit more about your work with regenerative agriculture. My name is Roberto Vega. I'm the head of uh, Global Valley Chain for Syngenta Group. Um, basically, my team supports companies in the implementation of their sustainable sourcing programs. Uh, we also work with academia and NGOs or so other type of stakeholders and more on the thought leadership piece, so trying to develop knowledge that then is um, the one that we transfer to our farmers uh, in order to improve their, their practices. This is very well connected with the whole Reading Act uh, discussion. Uh, I'm sitting in the steering committee of the uh, Reading Act program of Site Platform, for example, where we're also supporting 
the organization to um, develop the knowledge, the narrative, the KPIs that we're going to be using later to assess uh, practices on the ground. Fantastic. So maybe you could tell us a bit more in detail as to how Syngenta is engaging with Regenag and what kind of strategy changes from previous activities or, or the previous strategies Regenag is having on Syngenta. Yes, uh, that's an interesting question and it's an interesting question because I would say Syngenta has been working on Regenag for many, many years actually. Uh, just that we didn't call it that way at the time. No? Uh, but um, we have been putting a, a strong focus on soil and biodiversity, uh, developing new solutions, new technologies that are really in, uh, in this direction. Um, we also are moving from an input provider company into a more holistic service input provider uh, company where we're really bringing this, this knowledge also to the farmers. So not only the inputs as such, not only the products, but also you know all the 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 different elements that need to complement uh, those products in order for the products to be used safely uh, and to deliver the results that they need. Um, of course, productivity is on the top of the agenda, so we want farmers to uh, to be successful, so that's the, ultimately the, the purpose. But we also recognize that uh, soil, uh, as I said before, soil and biodiversity play a very important role. So for many years, uh, Syngenta has been working on these topics. We launched the Good Growth Plan which was um, a way to measure the sustainability uh, impact of our strategy on the ground. We launched it in 2014. Now we are revising our strategy, but the main pillars remain the same. So biodiversity and soil will always be a very, very important elements of, this, of, this, uh, uh, of our strategy. In addition to that, or to complement that strategy or support that strategy, uh, we've been investing in a lot in different solutions that were not necessarily our core business in the past. I'm talking here about digital agriculture, I'm talking here about biological solutions that we are adding to the portfolio, so we're really bringing a very uh, diverse and very robust portfolio to the farmers with um, new genetics in our seeds, uh, with new uh, pesticides that are very well aligned with these uh, topics of soils, soil health, biodiversity health, or biodiversity friendly products. And then in addition to that, digital tools that help farmers to take better decisions and of course biological solutions that complement the whole um, uh, portfolio with you know, the possibility of having m much better, much sound integrated pest management systems that is also part of what we're trying to do today and what we're trying to propose to the farmers. That's very interesting to understand how Syngenta is evolving with Regen Agriculture. And one of the, thing, one of the questions that comes to mind is, like, how much does Regen Agriculture represent for Syngenta? Is it a marginal kind of side project going on at the moment? Or is it really a core part of the business strategy and the evolution? In the sense, just to understand a bit where we stand with, you know, how, 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 how much has it integrated Syngenta's strategy? Yeah, that... I, I would basically say uh, it's not necessarily how much does it represent of Syngenta's strategy, our strategy supporting farmers, and what we recognize is uh, that the farming community is evolving as well. Uh, the situation that we're facing today when we see extreme weather conditions all around the world, uh, where we see what is happening with the depletion of soils or, or, the, or the loss of biodiversity, I mean, this this basically takes an, uh, requires an urgent response from the whole industry. So um, if, if I turn it into different words, I would say this is 
the direction that we are taking in the ag sector and that's, that's where, where, what we believe will continue growing as a trend, not regenerative agriculture. Uh, for those who have been working in sustainable ag for, for, for some years, we see that the topics are not necessarily different, but what we are really making as a big difference is we need to move from practices into outcomes. So I think that the transformation has already started. It will take time to really get the full adoption. But uh, we believe that the core business of the company will, will be basically based on, on, on a new system where regenerative agriculture is going to be uh, their rule and it's going to be mainstream uh, among farmers all around the world. One, one of the, of the um, let's say, one of the topics in Regen Agriculture that's often discussed by Regen farmers is input reduction. So how can we replace inputs with biological processes and etc. And this, this may go a bit at, like this may challenge an input company in terms of the fact that they will, it may mean less products sold and etc. And I'm just wondering what's your take on, on, on this aspect of Regen Ag? Absolutely, I, I completely agree with you. And that's why it is important to revise our business models and to revise uh, the portfolio of solutions that we're offering to the farmers. Um, when we look at Region Ag and when we look at, at the elements that compose Region Ag, I mean, we were talking about soil, we were talking about biodiversity, we, we recognize that the beauty of the products um, relies on how the products are used. And in many cases, there have been misuse, misuse of products, there, have, there has been uh, abuse of products. Uh, in other cases, we may need to use more products depending on the situation and depending on the conditions of the farms. Uh, and basically what we're looking for is the right balance. Now we are looking for a balance where uh, we can produce, we can continue producing given the situation that we're facing today, we can continue producing for many years, uh, but continue producing in a way that um, we reduce negative externalities uh, on biodiversity or negative externalities on soil. Is this, does this mean that we are going to be selling less um, conventional chemistry? Probably yes. And that's why it is important to diversify the, the portfolio, to look for other solutions, uh, to get into uh, tools like digital ag uh, solutions that are really bringing those benefits and are changing the ways of working and the business models of companies like Syngenta. One last question is, is more relating to farmers and your practical experience in the field. What are you seeing are the benefits to farmers from your experience and the different trials, experiments and what you've seen so far? What are the practical benefits that you're seeing for farmers of adopting regenerative agriculture strategies? And especially looking at economics, what do you see as the economic impact on farmers? Does it increase cost, reduce profitability or increase profitability? What are you seeing in the field? Yes, and, and that, that's a very interesting question because the reality is um, every system is going to be different and it's going to be affected or needs to be uh, 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 treated in a different way. It's not the same talking about the spices farmers in India or talking about coffee farmers in Colombia. I mean, they're going to have different challenges. Um, what we expect ultimately is that uh, farmers are better off and better off means eventually increasing their productivity, better off means accessing better markets, uh, having better conditions with the, the markets they are supplying to, but also reducing the cost. As you mentioned before, there, there will probably be reduction of uh, inputs in some cases, and in those cases, farmers are going to be benefiting from, from lower 
lower cost. Um, at the same time, there's something that we need to bear in mind, which is um, ultimately this is also an economical decision because if we don't do what we need to do now, we will not continue farming in the future. So if we want continuity uh, for the farmers and for the farms, we need to take these actions. So if we look at it from a financial point of view, what we are basically doing is we're ensuring that farmers will be able to continue farming for many years. Uh, otherwise, if we don't take these actions, basically we can uh, assume that the, the farm uh, will have a shorter life term. So we, this is... This is uh, as I said, in, in the end, uh, a clear financial benefit for the farmers. But yes, reduction of course, better markets, better um, uh, tr um, treatment of, of, of their soils, and, and of course productivity in the end uh, is what we're looking for uh, through these through this, uh, new practices and, and approaches. Thank you so much, Roberto, for taking the time to talk to us, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Hi, uh, Andrew. Welcome, and uh, thanks a lot for, for talking to us. Pleasure, Dimitri. Awesome. So, yeah, I wanted to bounce off some of the things that we heard in, uh, in, your, in your conference, in, uh, in the talk that you gave a bit uh, earlier on, and around, you know, the economics of regenerative agriculture, and it's all capital. You've earned a lot of experience working with farmers, and so I wanted to know a bit more about, you know, what does regenerative agriculture cost for farmers? What's the impact on profitability? What can we expect? So what I was trying to explain this morning, you know, Soil Capital by background is an agronomic advisory firm. We've worked with farmers all around the world on transitioning from conventional systems to regenerative systems with a focus on improving farm profitability. And now we work uh, alongside farmers helping them to earn carbon payments, in our case, from the supply chain from food and beverage companies that are also buying their crops and so it becomes really really important that we all build an understanding of what are the implications economic and practical implications of farmers making these transitions um, from all different starting points right you've got farmers who are already experienced in certain soil health building practices you've got others who are not at all focused on that in their system today and what I was trying to explain was that we, it's very common to understand that ultimately once you've achieved a more regenerative system, you can expect lower production costs, at least equal yields or better, and so better operating margins overall. But that's the destination, and the question is really, the more interesting question is, what does the journey look like from, from where a farmer is today to get to that destination? Now, in our practical experience, firsthand as soil capital, we have seen what we describe of as the no J-curve transition, by which we mean there doesn't need to be a dip in either productivity or profitability on that journey from the very beginning. And you can do that if you're designing that transition in a really knowledge-intensive way, right? You're looking at the, the input side of your farm system, you're maybe looking at your fertilizer and your crop protection package. You're looking for areas where you can optimize without taking unnecessary risk. And you're making an instant cash saving when you do that. And you can then reinvest that in a multi-species cover crop, which unlocks opportunities in the following season, for example. 
So we've seen that, that, that it's possible to, um, with the right knowledge and the right approach to managing risk, make that transition smooth from a profitability point of view, improving profitability. But the message I was really trying to give today to the corporate audience here was, like I've just said, that really depends on having access to the right knowledge, which for many farmers is going to be tough. You know, the, 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 the advice and the knowledge that they have available is more often than not going to come from a conventional system, let's say, around them. And so their experience of this transition may well involve greater costs up front. They may well make mistakes and see more risk coming into their system, which affects yields. And for that reason, um, that transition you know, does need extra financial reward and incentive from somewhere to persuade many, many farmers to go on that journey. Okay. And that's the role of carbon credits, or well, I don't think you call them carbon credits, it's, it's uh, soil capital, right? Could you explain us maybe a bit more about how you work with carbon payments and just tell us what's the, how, how it works in practice for farmers? Yeah, of course. I mean, the transition we made as a business was that we, rec we came to the recognition that I've just described, that for many, many farmers, a new financial incentive would be needed to persuade them to take the risk of, of starting to change their, you know, their fundamental operating system. And so we looked around at the different ways that we as a, as a small agronomy business could, could catalyze that. And we landed on carbon as one outcome of improving your soil health. You end up reducing your carbon emissions and increasing your soil carbon sequestration. We do that not by generating offsets from those carbon improvements, meaning a company that has no other relationship to the farmer will pay the farmer to make carbon improvements so that they can claim carbon neutrality over there somewhere. Instead, we focus on keeping that carbon inside the supply chain. So the same companies that buy the crops, um, the wheat, the barley, etc., from farms are using our platform to pay farmers to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions at farm level. Why are they doing that? Because those supply chain emissions are actually on those companies carbon balance sheet and so their investors care their customers increasingly may care and actually certainly their procurement people care because what they're seeing from a procurement side is more and more supply chain shocks from extreme weather drought floods but they're sitting there with the knowledge that healthy soil soil with more carbon in it is a is more resilient to drought and flood so it's a better bet if you're in procurement to be buying from healthy soil. So there's a, there's a, a set of logic that will drive food and beverage companies to, to make these kinds of investments. Okay, that's really interesting. And j just understand that the, the message that you made earlier on, you believe that this knowledge, the, no the knowledge to be able to have a no-J curve transition will be fu fundamental to scale regenerative agriculture. Is that... Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, look, I, I think still this is a, a barrier that holds many farmers back. The expectation, the experience even, if they've tried something, or, or just the belief that there will be economic loss involved. And, you know, let's, let's be very real. The, the, the low margin environment that most, I'm thinking arable farmers, but this extends to others, 
um, most farmers live with, it doesn't give them a cushion to be able to take that kind of risk. So, yeah, I think there are a couple of ingredients for scale that we see. One is absolutely more farmers coming to believe that that transition can be done in a profit compa- a profitability-enhancing way. Um, we're aiming to catalyze that with carbon payments now. We're also building the data set to prove it. Um, you know, I also think there's uh, plenty of work that needs to happen on the corporate side to build that return on investment case that I've been starting to outline earlier um, so that you know, much more capital is put to work to invest in these kinds of solutions at scale from the supply chain. Okay, that's fantastic. I think this is a really good overview as to your work uh, at Soul Capital and, and also feedback from your experience with the regenerative agriculture transition. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us now and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Pleasure. Uh, keep up the good work with the podcast. I know you've been to visit my team in uh, Belgium looking at the agroforestry work. And you know, if there are listeners out there, farmers in France or Belgium or the UK in arable systems that are interested, we'd love to hear from them. Fantastic. So where could our listeners find out more about, uh, about you? Just head straight to our website, soilcapital.com. One of the things we've built, which is quite handy, is a very quick, free simulator. So an arable farmer can plug in the details of their system and just model very quickly what kind of carbon earnings they could be looking at through us. Uh, it takes about 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. Amazing. Thanks so much, Andrew. Cheers. Thank you very much. Hello, Daniel, and uh, welcome. Um, maybe we could start by you giving us a bit of an intro as to um, who you are, where you work, and what you're doing here at the summit. Yes, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I work for Quantis International, we are a consultancy. Uh, our focus is mostly climate, biodiversity, and water, and we help companies to uh, start uh, transforming businesses and going from business as usual to business at its best. So our goal is really to help companies transform. I personally grew up on an organic farm in Switzerland. I studied agronomy and I was also working as a farmer. So uh, I tried to integrate my first-hand knowledge with theoretical knowledge about science and tools, how to accelerate transition towards regenerative agriculture. Very nice. So one of the first questions that we have for you is, you know, what is the role of Qantas in the regenerative agricultural transition? And how do you work with farmers or with corporates to enable that? Yeah, we are a science-based organization and uh, our focus uh, in the beginning was life cycle analysis, so we have a lot of data. So our goal is really to, to have uh, good data for companies where they really find out what's our environmental footprints in terms of climate, biodiversity, water, and then of course to find ways how they can transform and then can improve. And we help companies to define roadmaps, climate roadmaps, but also biodiversity roadmaps and, and how to, to implement things so we don't work directly with farmers but because we understand the whole value chain we, on, we can consult companies and help them to transition and especially a regenerative agriculture is, is an interesting topic because everybody talks about it but there is still limited understanding in, in corporates um, if you talk to sustainability people they have good understanding but if you talk to marketing people or supply chain people there's still a lot of uh, uh, awareness building needed and our role is also to build awareness in companies, in communication and help them to understand what should be done in future. Okay, that's very, very interesting. Maybe you could give us some examples of, of some of the companies that you're, you're, or examples of how you're working with some of the companies in practice. 
I mean, we have a lot of clients uh, from the food industry and uh, one example, it's not a big company, it's a smaller company called Familia from Switzerland and they produce muesli. You know, it's very famous in Switzerland and uh, it's the only Swiss word which is uh, known globally. But this company, they really wanted to embark on a journey where they, of course, they have a climate strategy, they want to reduce emissions, uh, comply with science-based targets, but uh, they want to go beyond. And their aim is really to, uh, to do something that is nature positive. And I think that's something which inspires me because they, they have an ambition and they have a clear view and we from a quantist perspective we can support them with the with with right with data so that they find out what's our baseline and, and what's the potential to improve. And I think there are many other companies in a similar approach, they, they want to find out well if we do this practice or if we adapt uh, our system in this direction, what's the impact? So uh, the, the question is always, what's the impact of a change in practices in terms of our climate footprint? And my message is always, well, it has an impact on climate, but there is additional benefit for biodiversity, water and livelihoods. And I think if companies understand that there is a, a win-win-win approach, if they do it right, beyond climate, uh, it's a huge opportunity. And we see more and more companies, uh, bigger, small, medium-sized ones, that are really uh, seeing it as a systemic and holistic transition and not just focusing on climate roadmaps. And from your experience with with the clients that you've consulted, do you see that do these clients see a business case for regenerative agriculture? What's their motivations for adopting uh, regenerative agriculture be beyond being able to communicate or to also, you know, to communicate to clients and to build this kind of of bridge that I think there is still limited awareness about about this I think they do it because they're under pressure because of uh, net zero claims or you know climate issues or SPTI and I think they don't really understand the um, the transformation that is needed in the supply chain from from soil to consumer and um, we see that there is still room for improvements still room for a better understanding and I think if they if they um, just stick on climate, uh, it's not enough. They need to really understand uh, also social issues and it's a holistic transformation. And of course, then you need to find connections, you need to find partners to implement something successfully on the ground because uh, any, there is no company that can do it alone. They need partners, they need uh, local experts, they need to have support uh, for farmers uh, that is on a local level and um, it's about partnerships, big competitive initiatives and that's something that's, that's really needed uh, in the future. So do you see these companies as being ready to bear the cost of a regenerative agriculture transition or how are they expecting to pay for this transition and I'm expecting that it's, it's going to have a certain cost? Yeah, and uh, to be honest, I think it's not sufficient. Even if they pay a premium price, if they have some additional funding for farmers to transition, that's not sufficient. So there needs to be additional, additional economic support uh, from, from governments, from NGOs, and from the private sector. And I think that it's only in a combination of different fun funding uh, streams that the transition can be successful. Of course, um, at the end, the price for the product needs to be better than before. I'm pretty convinced that needs to be a, uh, there needs to be a better price that is paid to farmers. But to, to have this investment in the systemic change, it's not enough just from the brands. Very interesting. And from your perspective, what are the key levers to change, to transition to regenerative agriculture? And by that I mean, you know, what are the biggest opportunities that you see for companies to be able to be motivated and to actually create practical change? I think one area that is important and key is, is leadership. 
and we need to have leadership, be it in a board or CEO or management level, that understands regeneration and I call it regenerative leadership that's needed. So it needs a different approach and different view on, on a transition which is long term. And not, it's, it's not about quarter reporting, it's about a 10-year plan, how to, how to uh, improve and transition to a new state. And I think on the other hand, we need, we need um, more people that are, um, let's say, supporting this transition. So it's about building bridges and to, uh, to work together in, in coalitions, uh, as we have seen the, the example from, from Nestle, Salvivo in France, together with Earthworm Foundation. So we always need to find uh, the right partners to implement something on the ground. And what's interesting that farmers are willing to make this transition. Oh, but, but what is needed is beyond financial support, kind of uh, a positive signal and kind of uh, valuing what they are doing. And I think there should be more uh, communication and not only communication, but also connection from brands to farmers to better understand each other. It's really interesting how you're mentioning things that go beyond the financial incentives. There's a, as we have heard many times today, a bit of a change in mindset and changing culture that is necessary. Of course, and I think that's not a, that's not a simple task because uh, human beings are used to the comfort zone. We like our comfort zone because that's where we feel comfortable. So you have to leave your comfort zone. So the brands have to leave, corporates have to leave, but also farmers have to leave. But farmers are reacting more positively if they have a role model, if they have a pioneering farm in the, in the area where they can really watch and see and, 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 and really feel what's going on. And at the end, um, farmers make decisions not based just on economic issues, but also on culture. And brands need to understand better what, what's the culture of uh, of a farming system in a specific context and take that into account and find ways how to connect really with people and not just uh, communicate but to connect that's the bottom line fantastic daniel thank you so much for sharing with us your experience here and you know maybe for our listeners that want to know more about your work where could they where could they find out yeah um i'm on linkedin so you find me on linkedin i'm posting regularly if you want to follow me and uh, i've written a small book um, easy to read 88 pages uh, my goal was that everybody can read it and get some understanding on agriculture it's called feeding the world uh, or feeding the earth, sorry, and uh, in French it's called nourrir la terre. Thank you. Amazing, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Hello, and today we are with Bastien from Earthworm Foundation that's coming to talk to us a bit about scaling regenerative agriculture. Hi Bastien, and maybe we could just uh, start by you telling us a bit about your work, a bit about Earthwork Foundation as well. Hello, Dimitri and Reza. Um, yeah, thanks for, for inviting me. Um, basically, Earthworm Foundation is a, is a non-for-profit organization, a Swiss foundation that has been working for 20 years with the objective to regenerate soils and forests. And the way we do it is by working with companies that are buying the raw materials eventually on the, the downstream, you know, the big brands or smaller brands that want to transform. And they want to have a positive impact on forests, on soils, and of course on the people who live in rural areas. And, and so we started working on the timber uh, initially in the forest. So we are very close to the forest originally and we've, we've helped working with uh, uh, lots of companies that were putting wood on the market and transform the way forests were managed. Uh, we did that uh, and helped many forests in tropical countries become FSC certified. And then, um, and then little by little we, we worked on all the raw materials that have a negative impact on the forest. 
palm oil, soybean, cocoa, rubber. And then more recently, we, we, we realized that eventually the key thing is to work with farmers um, and, 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 and their soils. And so that's how we've, we've gone into more, much more agriculture in the last 10 years. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about how Earthworm Foundation is collaborating with these industry leaders in order to facilitate a transition. I mean, we, ha we heard a fascinating talk about your work with Nestle, and maybe we can use that as a case study. Yes, so what we, where we start with companies is always on their values. I call, you, you could call it policies. What do you want to achieve? So um, it's basically their sourcing policy where they will put down in their sourcing uh, guidelines what is it that they want exactly. And what we realize is that when you talk about the kind of forest management that you want or the kind of agricultural management that you want, you don't find often um, something very clear or a clear definition. What is regenerative? What is, uh, what is uh, sustainable forestry? There, you have a few principles, but they are not always compiled into what could be a sourcing policy. So we built on the experience that we had on, on forests, where we basically helped craft the no deforestation policy by really getting down with scientists and creating a methodology to say what is a forest and what is not a forest. And if you look on Wikipedia, you've got a massive definition of what is a forest, but it's not something practical. And you think about the guys who are opening forests in, in Asia or in Africa, and you have on one side the big industries that, that think forests, in the past we had that in 2010, the big industries that think you know, forests is, um, is just a little bit on the hills and you can clear everything. And you've got the activist NGOs like Greenpeace, like any piece of wood is forest. And so everyone was stuck without a solution to figure out, okay, how do we define forest and how do we develop economically why conserving nature? So we developed a methodology called the high carbon stock forest methodology. You can find it on the internet, highcarbonstock.org, which is a methodology that is now used by Amsterdam Declaration, New York Declaration on Forest, all the company policies, and that helps you know, companies and investors and anyone, basically even operators, define how to manage forests in, in a development context. We are looking at doing the same thing for soils. So basically, our regenerative agriculture, what is a healthy soil? How do you measure it? And to do that always, what we try to do is to get in touch with uh, scientists or practitioners and practitioners so that we don't end up with something that is very researchy and uh, difficult to understand and then we bring them together and we said how would you do it in practice we even get the farmers involved so we create a small scientific committee for example to do that and then we test uh, tools or indicators that allow us to measure soil health in a way that is scientifically correct scientifically correct and practical and then we make sure that these definitions can be inserted into sourcing policies so that when a company says, I want a raw material like that, it sends an instruction to the upstream, to the producers, that is something that they can do and that makes sense in terms of indicators and, and, and guiding and measurement. So the next step, so this is really the, the policy step. The next step to help companies is to figure out where and who produces their raw materials. So you have uh, uh, companies like Nestle, Ferrero, etc. They source from multiple origins, multiple suppliers. And for many years, through the commoditization of their, of their supplies they, or their procurement, they, haven't, they don't always know where it comes from. They don't know the farmer who produces it. So the next step really is to get to meet the suppliers and get to know the farmers who are producing. And we look there, 
how are you doing in terms of production? Are you far away from what is expected in terms of, of responsible production or not? And, and, and then we can look at, you know, always you've got farmers that are, or producers that are really well advanced and others that are lagging behind. And the idea is how to help and support the ones that are lagging behind and reward those who are performing well. So the, the, the third pillar of our action is really the transformation. And that's where we mobilize people in the field. Um, but not just our people, we also partner with lots of institute, association, experts, people who have done that sometimes for years, you know, agroforestry specialists like we're doing in France uh, with uh, Les Planteurs Volontaires or various associations um, where we, we bring them in, in a favorable context where the supply chain, the producers, the buyers are all demanding their expertise so they can come in and work with the farmers and there is funding for that, etc. And eventually the last part is to verify because the verification of, of that eventually, you know, this forest is still standing, that soil is healthy, is what will allow the whole supply chain to reward financially the farmers um, and the producers with premiums, with longer term contracts, somehow decommoditizing um, the supply chain and creating this long-term relationship between a farmer who produces raw materials and then a buyer who is uh, tied to a level of quality that this farmer can produce for him, helping him meet the climate objectives, etc. etc. Well, that's a really, really elaborate and eloquent explanation of what you're doing. It's very interesting. Um, and you know, one of the things that came to mind is, is linked to there's a, there's a certain cost to this transition and they can be experienced by the farmer, um, especially by the farmer, um, and a certain risk as well associated with the regenerative agriculture transition. And what I wanted to know is, when you're working with these, uh, um, these corporate uh, uh, industry leaders, um, you know, who is paying for this transition? Who is reducing the risk to the farmers if it is actually happening? How does it, how does it play out economically? So, I would say two things. The first one is our work, a bit like a coach or you know, fitness coach you would pay to help to get fit. Um, we we get paid by by the, the the brands mostly that said, okay, we want to we want to change. We need help. Uh, we have decided to invest in our change journey. We need partners to help us. So a lot of our funding comes from brands who hire us or work with us, so we can help them transform. Then. The real cost of transformation, I, I would put it more as a real risk of transformation. Because today, many supply chains kind of function. You know, they deliver raw materials to the consumer and that's okay. Um, the thing is, we know we are extracting capital from soils, from people, and that cannot be done forever. So at some stage, we need to change the course of things. Um, the thing is, when everyone comes to the farmer saying, you need to change the course of things, the farmer is thinking, yeah, nice, I will try. But if he fails, he's the only one paying the cost. So if I'm a farmer and I'm trying something, let's say putting trees in my, in my field, I will maybe lose some production, maybe I don't know if it's the right trees, etc. And I'm the only one paying for it if it fails, if it doesn't bring something positive to me as everyone promised. And then there's no one to come back to the farm and say, oh, poor you, you've lost some, some yield, I'm going to compensate you. It's not happening. So what we believe is the need to share the risk of the transition. Share the, the transition is beneficial for everyone. We know you can have savings by working more with nature. Nature can do things for you that will save you fuel, cost, chemicals. But to get to that point, you need to 
to, to, to take a leap of faith. And to do that, we believe the whole supply chain, but also the governments, have an opportunity to come and support. So support with technical expertise, etc., but also support by investing a bit, um, uh, paying some rewards, uh, <laughs> supporting with assistant funds, some kind of subsidies as well from, from, from the state. I, I think all the actors that have an interest in seeing the farmers succeed can all take a little bit of their share of the challenge. Investors as well. They can put money on the table saying, I am funding you to do your transition, and if it doesn't work, maybe I don't recoup my money. But that's, that's the kind of attitude that we're looking for. So we're talking to governments, regional governments, brands, of course, insurance companies, investors, and then ecosystem services, financiers, that, who could come and bring some reward as well for the work done. And, and, and I believe all of them have the opportunity to, to take a little bit of the share, a piece of the backpack, uh, on their back to support the farmer. And is this something that you're seeing um, being played out in practice? So the big challenge to do that is that we need to put the actors around the same table so that they are um, comfortable that each is doing kind of their part. Because what, the, what a, a big brand doesn't want to do is to take the whole transformation on its own and then the, the, the other brands are kind of waiting for the farmer to transform and when the farmer is transformed, ah, now we can buy from, from him but we haven't invested in the transformation which, fair enough but it leads to potential everyone, everyone watching each other so the idea is to really proactively around concrete projects mobilize and for me concrete projects are like uh, being sitting around the table and saying, okay we're going to transform so many farmers with so many suppliers, etc. What do you put in? And if you put in that, I can put in that as well. And you, basically everyone does its share. So we organize that mostly around the rotation of the crops. So, you know, a farmer will produce, I don't know, canola, beetroot um, in temperate regions. Huh? Canola, beetroot, um, uh, wheat and barley. Let's take an actor from, all the, from each raw material to come in and to and to support so that's one option the other thing that but it's valid in tropical regions as well we work in in places where you've got palm cocoa you've got uh, nutmeg you've got uh, vetiver you've got different you know products being being produced if you bring all the raw, the supply chains and the actors that have a stake in that landscape they can all contribute to the transition to the replanting to piloting new systems uh, in agroforestry in particular very interesting um, one of the other questions I had for you is what are some of the key challenges that you're seeing to be able to implement and scale regenerative agriculture in, throughout the supply chain is it coming more from the farmer side is it coming more from the corporate side what are some of the th th most difficult things to overcome I think there are a few um, I would not be able to point to one I think the, I will come back to the risk the fact that today the risk is mostly taken by the farmer and if I'm a farmer, let's say I'm 50, uh, my kids are in school or in university, I've got already loans, why would I radically change something that has been kind of functioning up to now? So giving the appetite to risk and being able to share that risk for me is absolutely key. To be able to do that, second obstacle is manage the egos of, of, and the view that people have of, of solving a problem thinking that either I do it myself or I let the others do it, maybe we can all do a little bit. And that means being open and being um, able to talk to other entities. So the private talking to the public, 
brands talking between each other, brands talking to their suppliers in another relationship that one can get from you, which is sometimes, you know, you take a supplier and a brand, they're always discussing commercially every cent of, of the price. What can we do else than just fighting on price? What, what are the things that we can build together? And this is this attitude that I think is, that is needed. And if you do that, then it allows to unlock key things that are missing, measurement, finance. For me, these are almost sub-products of, of the collaboration that we can create. Amazing. Bastien, thank you so much for explaining uh, and elaborating on, on your work. Uh, maybe you could tell us a bit about uh, where um, our listeners could find out more about your work if they wanted to. So thanks a lot, a pleasure. Um, you, they can go on earthworm.org which is our main website. We have also a, a page called Sol Vivant in French, .org, uh, all with an S at the end of Sol and Vivant. And, um, and that's it. And um, there you can find different projects. And if, of course, if they want to know more, they can get in touch with us. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, Charles. So Charles is joining us now. Charles Leonardi is joining us from Nestlé France to talk about uh, the work of Nestlé and uh, regenerative agriculture. So maybe, Charles, you could give us a bit of an introduction of yourself and, and, and what you're doing at uh, Nestlé France. With pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dimitri. So I'm Charles. I'm the head of supply chain for Nestlé in France. Um, that means I'm covering uh, the value chain from procurement uh, till the delivery of uh, finished goods. Um, and uh, in France, in fact, um, Nestlé uh, is very much present um, industrially. So we have uh, uh, 17 factories. Uh, we are sourcing uh, 1 million tons of raw materials, out of which uh, 700,000 are uh, raw materials which are produced uh, in France. So uh, we have a, 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 an important footprint, and uh, therefore we are very close to, to our, our suppliers, our farmers, and, um, and therefore regenerative agriculture is very important uh, for us. And uh, if I understand correctly, Nestlé has made a very big commitment to regenerative agriculture, so maybe you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that's correct. So we have a very big ambition, uh, so we want uh, uh, to have 20% of our sourcing, which is uh, uh, regenerative agriculture by 2025, and uh, 50% by 2030. So. It's a huge ambition and uh, it's a very stretched target, but uh, we believe it's the right thing to do uh, for, our, for our climate and uh, uh, we have to do it. Yeah. Very interesting. So the first question that we have, um, and this was of course discussed in our previous talk, uh, in, the, in the talk that you did earlier on with Earthworm Foundation, who we just interviewed before, um, was about... You know, we, I'd love for you, for you to explain to our listeners, you know, how you're integrating regenerative agriculture in this in your supply chain, and you know, wh what's your strategy around that? How are you going to actually reach your 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 commitments to regenerative agriculture? Mm -hmm. So, first of all, um, we are not the one really doing. In fact, we we have to work with the farmers. The farmers are the ones really who are the most involved with the soil. So, what we are trying to do is as much as possible to support them. Uh, to do this uh, huge, uh, huge transition and uh, and to to, yeah, to 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 go towards this regenerative agriculture. So we are listening a lot to to our suppliers and to our farmers, and uh, we are trying to understand uh, what is the most important for them, so that we can support uh, in this effort. So, if I would um, summarize the two biggest, most important uh, topic, one 
is the knowledge and what type of expertise, what type of sharing, what type of trainings we can we can work with the farmers on. And the second part is uh, the 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 risk and uh, the cost impact and uh, the incentive we can we can try to give to them in order to to support this transition. So. We are, uh, on one side, we don't have all the knowledge, definitely, so we are trying to find the best ecosystem, the best experts. Uh, definitely Earthworm Foundation is a big partner for us to create this ecosystem of knowledge. Um, and we are working, thanks to them also, with some other partners like Ecosystem in France, who is specialist in training of the farmers, etc. Uh, so this is one part, and then this is not enough, because if we only come with knowledge and training or expertise or measures, um, we touch generally, and this is what we did a few years ago, we touched the pioneers, so the ones who are already very much committed and uh, want to do it, but we don't reach uh, enough to bring the percentage higher. And this is where there needs to be an additional incentive, and uh, we need to, to come also with some uh, financial, uh, financial incentives and uh, some premiums typically uh, in order to accelerate the move. Fantastic, that's very interesting. And so. Yeah, you, you've already started to explain a bit here, but it would be great to elaborate a bit more on how you're interacting with the farmers in this in this transition. Are you always going through another another specialized uh, company or foundation like Earthworm, or are you having some direct interactions with farmers through the through the supply of the raw material? Yeah, so our our supply chain um, in France, and this is not the same in all countries. Huh? We we have some countries uh, like in developing markets on cocoa, on coffee, where we are much much more in direct touch uh, directly with the farmers. Uh, in France, we are working a lot with cooperatives and. Uh, with uh, uh, our suppliers are the ones who are more in touch uh, with, with, with the farmers. And it's very important for us, in fact, because it's our supply chain is designed like that, it's very important that we onboard also the cooperatives, that we have the same uh, direction, same vision, we share the ambition, and also that they are part of the solution. Because um, if we try to convince the farmers ourselves, but we are not consistent with what our suppliers are working on with them, we, we cannot achieve it in France. So, yes, uh, generally it is uh, the suppliers, the farmers, ourselves, and then around that, an ecosystem of specialized companies who, who will bring different types of expertise. One would be training, another one would be measure, another one would be and this is this whole ecosystem that we are trying to co-design now yeah, and uh, that we are working on in, in France in uh, what we call the originally living soil project and uh, because everything started with the soil and which we are not now coding more and more regenerative agriculture. Very interesting. And I'm, I'm curious as to what's the, what stage are you at at the moment? Have you already worked out this model and the key partners to create this, uh, this, this transition or where are you at? I think we will never have finished, huh? so we are really in a building mode and we we'll continue uh, learning by doing etc. But we, we start to have some scale, yeah? so uh, last year uh, uh, with the 10, we reached 10 suppliers huh, already and uh, last year we were able uh, to already work with 200 farmers uh, really uh, engaged, uh, involved, doing trainings with us 
uh, and starting the measurement, which is very important in this uh, in this transition. So getting a training, getting the first measures, and being involved with us on longer-term engagement, longer-term commitment uh, to go for forward in this in this transition. So we start to have some scale, and the ecosystem to support uh, this scale uh, is getting built at the moment. And 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 the more it goes, the more we try to to bring other companies with us, other suppliers, other food companies, uh, other stakeholders, because we'll not do it alone. One of the things in your talk earlier on that we were listening to that I thought was fascinating is that you were mentioning the need to collaborate with competitors in the field. And so maybe you could tell us a bit about why, why are you needing to collaborate with some competitors and why does the regenerative agriculture transition require a community to work together, which is something that's quite fascinating. Thank you. No, um, this is difficult. This is a very difficult part because uh, after uh, I'm 25 years in supply chain in Nestle and always, you know, competition is important for us. It's the first time uh, these past years, the first time that I'm sitting around the table with my competitors. And it's not easy, but we need to do it. And why we need to do it? It's because, again, we listen to the farmers uh, and our suppliers. We try to understand how we can help them. And one part where we can help them is to be consistent in the industry of what we are asking them. And um, if we are not coming, we have to simplify the life. We have to simplify the life of the farmers. If they have uh, one day Nestle, another day, uh, another one coming with a different framework and the third day a, a third one coming with a different framework and different asks, they will not be able to manage. It will be too complex and at this certain point of time they may even give up. So we have a role to play uh, to align because all of us we have to move. All of us I think we are convinced that this is a, we, we need to transition and we need to help the ones who will do and the ones who will do are the farmers. And uh, this is why I'm trying to convince my competitors also to sit around the table. We are open to, to update the, the, the framework uh, to take some other things into consideration we may not have put uh, immediately. But it's very important for the farmers that we are all aligned on what we ask them and how we support. So, yeah, this is... No, no, that's great. Um, that's a very clear answer. Thanks for that. And, you know, you're, you're, we're talking about this transition, we're talking about the farmers, that they are going to be implementing this in the field, and that's going to incur certain transition costs, which is a theme that's been coming out a lot uh, in these talks that we've been listening to at the moment. And uh, so I was wondering, how is, Nestle, or how is Nestle helping the farmers in this transition? Is Nestle assuming these costs, or, or how are you distributing the financial burden of a, a regenerative transition? Okay. So what we started doing, the, the first thing we did was um, to bring some expertise. So we paid for experts like Earthworm Foundation, like Ecosystem, uh, all this satellite data we are trying to gather, etc. So all the expertise, training um, that we, we wanted to bring, uh, we took the cost on, on our shoulders and we said, we, we, okay, it, it's our part and, and we do it. Um, then we found out if we just do that, which is already a big investment to be honest, but if we only do that, uh, it will not be enough to accelerate and to, to go to the ambition, huge ambition we are trying to, to get. And this is where we decided, in fact, to um, give an incentive. And this incentive 
It's very difficult to say if we cover all the additional costs or if we cover the risks or, or whatever, but it has to be sufficiently consistent to, to be uh, already something motivating. And also it has to be gradual. So it has to start from the beginning. So from the beginning, for the people who get uh, involved, engaged, get the training, and in fact start the measures, we already give a first incentive. Then there is a second step when people change practices. We give an additional incentive. And then there is an additional step when people start to get quantitative results in the soil, soil fertility or soil carbon, etc. And then we give an additional uh, incentive. So we, we made a gradual incentive so that we start from the beginning with something and that you know the more you advance and the more in fact you get involved and the more you you put money or risk on the table and the more we gradually give uh, additional incentive to the farm so this is how we try to build and try to to do it as fair as possible and this incentive system that you've created you see that as being able to to scale to the 50 or 100 percent of of your of the supply or the farmers that you're working with, or you're seeing it as an incentive system that's specialized for the pioneers. So, the pioneers, honestly, they didn't even needed us. In <laughs> fact, you know, they were already convinced. They were already, they did a lot without us, to be honest. Um, and but they were of course happy to get additional expertise, and they were happy to get additional additional food. Now, the. The, the fact that we started to give this additional incentive I was speaking about helped us to go from these pioneers to more scale. And typically 200 in one year was not easy huh, to, to get 200 farmers to, 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 to be engaged in our program. But, but still it's, it happened, I think, a lot because we, we, we were ready to put some money on the table and to, to give this incentive. Now, on top of this incentive to go from 20 to 50, I think it will be much easier in a sense than to go from 0 to 20 because people will start seeing the first results of the 0 to 20 and they will start having their peers, their colleagues showing you know, what it brought to them, uh, why they're happy about the change, uh, why they are more resilient, why etc. etc. And, and, and then the more testimonies you will have and the more proof points you will have, and the easier it will be. But of course the incentive will remain important for us to put on the table. That's very, very interesting. Um, the final question that I have for you is, um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome in order to create this regenerative transition, to onboard the farmers, to convince... I don't know exactly where it could have come from, but what are, what are some of the biggest challenges you're facing to reach the, the commitments that you've made? It's a very big question because we had a lot of changes, I must say. It's not, it's not easy because you have to, to work with people, uh, and people and, and you ask people to make a big, big change. And uh, there are a lot of fears behind this change, etc. So a big part is, you know, how you, you bring people for this change management and, and to trust you that uh, you bring them on a, on a, positive, on a positive path. So the, the, the relation, the, how to onboard the farmers was really one of our biggest concerns on how, how we can make it, etc. The, the other part was how you convince the business to invest and how you make sure that everybody is behind you within the company. And, and, and so 
here I must say uh, the ambition that the group uh, has put and that our CEO has put to give you know very big and strong and, and very ambitious targets has helped us a lot because then it was very clear that we had to do it and uh, so there needs to be an ambition coming from the top and I think this was this was very very helpful in our in our transition. I would say one one, one other thing is um, the. The, the, one of the challenges is not to get disrupted by short-term short-term issues. You know, every year, one day you have COVID, another day you have uh, you have Ukraine and the impact on commodities, another day you have weather impact, etc. And you should you should keep you know the focus on you know we have to continue our vision, we have to continue our ambition, and you should not get distracted by these short-term issues. You know, the big big picture is more important than the short-term short-term hurdles. Uh, and, and this is across the chain, you know, farmers can also be tempted, you know, to say, okay, let's wait for next year because this year, you know, we, we, we have to put as much volume as possible because the white year to send big volume, etc. Uh, suppliers, uh, we as, as well, we can have some other concerns, etc. So we have to keep this focus. And I would say the last point and last point is, last challenge is, as you were saying, we, we need to bring around the table people who are not used to work together and institutions, authorities, scientifics, uh, farmers, suppliers and at the end competitors, uh, making sure that we are all aligned on what we want to do, how we want to do, we help each other and we also see that the bigger picture is more important than, uh, uh, than the West and, uh, and uh, I think um, we, we learn at the moment to work totally differently, no longer in a pure competitive mode, but in a coalition mode. And uh, I think for all of us, it, it's a learning, but uh, I think we start to have quite uh, positive, uh, positive first uh, success stories. And uh, I hope uh, we could share this morning a part of it. Yeah. This morning was definitely very interesting and I'm, I, I cannot resist the temptation to ask one last thing because you're giving me some very interesting elements and answers here which I know our listeners will love. Um, you know, what is the value that, that Nestle sees in regenerative agriculture? Why is Nestle taking such a massive commitment to regenerative agriculture? So we were anyway already convinced that soil is super important uh, for the sustainability of the supply chain. You know, we, we are losing soil. Uh, if we want to continue being able to produce food in the future, we need soil. So we were already convinced that in terms of disruption, risk of disruption, risk of our supply chains, we will have to protect the soil and we will have to work on, on, on this topic. And this is why we started several years ago. Now on top of that, it's more and more clear that if we want to reach our commitment in terms of climate change and in terms of carbon and in terms of we need the soil to be also part of the solution and we need the farm. And in our carbon footprint, uh, depending on the country uh, in Nestle, we have between 60 to 70 percent of our total carbon footprint which is in agriculture, which is on the upstream side. So if we want to be carbon neutral in the future, if we want to reach our net zero commitment that we gave to ourselves for 2050, which is tomorrow, we cannot not work with the farmers on soils and on regenerative agriculture. So um, I think it's uh, now it's super clear within the company that not only it's a good idea for 
supply, uh, supply continuity and, and business continuity. But it's, so very, it's also very important for climate and for the environment and overall. So it, it's only a good idea, in fact. It's, uh, we have to do it. That's good to hear from our perspective as well. Regenerative agriculture is a win-win and a win-win-win possibly as well. So thanks a lot for taking the time to talking with us today. And um, where could uh, our listeners find out more about uh, Nestle's commitment to regenerative agriculture? Uh, okay, so on, on, our, on our website you will find uh, uh, all our commitment in terms of uh, the, the net zero uh, footprint strategy so how, how, how far we want how fast we want to to go there um, and uh, yeah I'm sure we'll continue to to publish uh, our progress and uh, with a lot of humility because uh, we are continuing to learn a lot um, by, by doing so we'll continue hopefully by sharing uh, convincing others to join uh, to join the road and, uh, and to join the journey which is a very important one. Thank you so much, Charles, for taking the time to talk with us. You're welcome. Thank you, Dimitri. It was a good exchange. Thank you very much. Hello, Felix Jacobson. Thanks for coming on and for talking with us. Um, you're coming from CLIM, so maybe you could you know, tell us a bit about yourself and, and what CLIM does and how it's related to regenerative agriculture. Yes. Hi. Uh, good to be here. Uh, I work at CLIM. CLIM is a company based out of uh, Berlin in Germany, and we're really focused on yeah, actually making regenerative agriculture or the transition to regag scalable across farmers in a very farmer-centric way. So when we started a few years back, we saw that a lot of the programs out there and a lot of the things out there are A, very prescriptive and B, quite cumbersome on the farmer side. So we really aimed at building something from the ground up, looking at what do farmers need. And what that was for us was really... Uh, it's transition finance, obviously, it's knowledge, and it's also recognition. So we think the combination of the connection between consumer and farmers in agriculture is super, super important and in making that transparent. And uh, out of that actually came, a, came an app uh, that we built and launched in 2020 uh, for farmers, supporting them, giving them a toolbox, enabling their decisions uh, on what to do in order to grow more regeneratively. Fantastic. I'm very curious. You're going to have to break a bit, break down these things that you've said and, and maybe help us to understand how does your app and, and your solution help to, you know, train farmers, find educational, uh, find uh, uh, transition finance and also connect to the customers. How, do you, how does that work out in practice? Mm -hmm. So imagine you have a farm, you download our app, you upload your, you set up your farm, you upload your fields, you tell us about your crop rotation, about what you're going to do, it's mm -hmm. your baseline. We, based on that, instantaneously offer you a bunch of different things that you could be doing and that would work well for your certain fields within your crop rotation. But at the end of the day, you can choose what you want to take, really making your decisions, because I mean, every farm is uh, different. We do not have a one-size-fits-all solution that works everywhere, and we don't tell you what exactly to do, but what practice to apply. Mm -hmm. And with that, talking transition finance or transition incentives, financial incentives, we do have a certain amount of money that we will pay you after you successfully applied these methods uh, within your farm. Mm -hmm. And where does that come from is probably the next question. The only uh, value that uh, the only value that uh, industry and our consumers are currently willing to pay is carbon sequestration. 
but also carbon reduction, which is per definition permanent if you look at uh, yeah, reduced fertilizer usage and so on and so forth. Fascinating, that's really interesting. How many farmers are you working with at the moment? Uh, so it's almost 2,000 farmers, just in the German-speaking regions, going to expand uh, next year. That's very positive, that's very exciting, it's many farmers. And so, you know, based on that, um, that oversight that you're gaining, um, you know, what are some of the key opportunities that you're seeing that regenerative agriculture creates for farmers? I mean, this summer has been a very difficult summer for farmers, which of course helps our regenerative agenda as an industry, but is difficult for the food ecosystem as a whole. Um, I do think the opportunity lies really around the overall ecosystem services and uh, yeah, yield security and supply chain resilience, which helps farmers, but ultimately also the farmers' buyers, be it consumers or large food corporates. That makes all the sense. It's something that resonates with other things that we've been hearing around the conference and some of the interest that we're seeing from some of the big buyers that are here with us uh, in the conference. And so, you know, in, you know, similar to this question I just made, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges that you guys are seeing for farmers to transition? Where is there either resistance or, or a struggle to transition towards regenerative agriculture? We do still see, even though it changes, that farmers are a bit resistant to new things coming into their life actually especially when it comes from larger companies because farmers do feel that they have been a little bit marginalized over the last years and that is something that is changing and that's why we think also the recognition part is so important to realize how big an opportunity it is to actually speak with farmers be very close with farmers not saying that large companies don't do that and that agronomists don't do that but to really like kind of engage with them in the discussion again of, of how we can uh, make sure to actually make their farms and their fields and their practices more sustainable that's very interesting you know you're making me think about something a conversation that we had earlier on uh, off mic and in the halls and you were talking about the importance of, of you know telling a story uh, you know, and you were saying that at Klim you're, you're taking on, um, you're, you're, you're addressing the issue of scaling regenerative agriculture also through quite an emotional lens. And so maybe you could explain to us a bit, you know, what that means and, and you know, why, why doing it like this and what it means in practice. Mm -hmm. uh, so what that really means for us is that we're not just a farmer or B2B company, but we also work on the consumer or, as we heard today, citizen side. Uh, of things uh, by seeing ourselves and our space and our role in the regenerative ecosystem as a larger one meaning we don't just need to take the food corporates and the farmers on board but we also need to take the consumers on board meaning we actually work for instance for Instagram through other campaigns for influencers on educating around what does regenerative agriculture ac actually mean what does agriculture, what does our ecosystem mean and how much of an existential and essential foundation of our life it ultimately is. So we take that and we really aim to connect that because at the end of the day we do need a consumer pull in order to uh, get a more environmentally friendly, nature friendly, climate friendly, however you want to call it, 
food production and food ecosystem. In, in the current agricultural uh, system or, or organization, um, there's often a big divide between the farmer, not a divide, but a big distance between the farmer and the consumer. Many people, organizations, companies in between, and products that can travel extremely far. And so I'm curious as to your take on you know, how you know, you, you're talking about the importance of, of creating more connection there and you know, how does that work in practice? What other organizational models are you seeing that could be successful in connecting farmers with, with, uh, with uh, consumers and that could apply at scale? Mm -hmm. So we work on insetting with large organizations where we take their farmers and that is something that can obviously be very transparently communicated also to customers and consumers at the end of the day. But also on the offsetting side, we have the opportunity for companies to, that don't have as much control about their supply chains to be working with us, offsetting their emissions by supporting regenerative agriculture and communicating that through a clear brand and label claim. And we actually very transparently connect that to which farmer is being supported, what do they do, we show a photo of them, and it even means that uh, we even have like customers of ours, like B2B customers, that go, they go to the fields, they make videos with the farmers, they implement it in their communication, really connecting and really showing what is actually happening and what's the actual impact of the extra money that the company invests into, well, carbon offsets and the ecosystem services, but uh, ultimately, of course, also the consumers that buy these products and really bringing it closer and showing that um, yeah, showing how the food ecosystem works and can change and transition in that way. That's fascinating. One of the big themes that we've been hearing in this conference is about monitoring and measuring change and having an outcome-based approach to regenerative agriculture. And so I was just curious as to you know, how your company works with that. How do you, have you developed some kind of a framework? As, tell us a bit more about, about that aspect. So we have a very science-based science approach, not going around and soil sampling every hectare every year, but looking at what is actually happening and what is proving, or what is proven that is happening. Mm -hmm. Very conservatively. We very conservatively look at that in order to potentially include error margins that might be there. We calibrate on, with soil samples and we recognize the importance of them. We just don't find them operationally as essential and uh, not where the money should be spent compared to the actual transition. Um, based on those models, we very transparently communicate to the farmers of what they can expect in terms of uh, carbon sequestration values and uh, do photo documentation as well as satellite documentation where we actually know very exactly of what is happening, where, on what field, at what time. Okay. And through that have documented what is actually going on. Okay, that's fascinating stuff. So maybe to finish off, you could tell us, our listeners, you know, where they can find out more about Klim and your work. Klim.eco, mm -hmm. uh, or just uh, shoot us an email, find us on LinkedIn, uh, wherever you may, or on Instagram. We have farms and a consumer account. Fantastic. Felix, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you. Hello, Philip. Very nice to have you here. So you're working with Climate Farmer. You're the founder, the co-founder of Climate Farmers. Maybe you could tell us a bit about your work and what Climate Farmer does to, to get started here. Sure. Hi. Pleasure to be here. Very nice. Um, Climate Farmers is essentially there to serve farmers. So that means we're helping farmers all over Europe with the transition towards more regenerative practices, essentially. Um, this started with 
me uh, buying some land and starting a village project in Portugal, which caused me to start looking at the land myself, which got me into regenerative agriculture. And then I tried to find out why this seems to be such a niche, even though it's, it's a solution to so many of our problems. And then I had the pleasure of spending uh, almost one year working on regenerative farms with regenerative farmers. Um, first of all, falling in love with them. And second of all, uh, trying to understand what we can do to help them. And that's essentially the core starting point for climate farmers. Okay, very nice. And what's your, what are your current activities now? How do you work with climate farmers at the, with farmers at the moment? Yeah. So the essential first part is that we have a community of around 600 farmers in there. Um, we organize skill calls between the farmers, so on topics and by experts which the farmers can request from us. For example, Elaine Ingham, John Kempf, Richard Perkins would be in there. We organize the yearly Climate Farming Congress, which is a conference for farmers. So we have a majority of farmers being present there, um, exchanging thoughts with each other. Then basically everything that we're doing is always drive, driven by feedback that we're getting. So one thing that we have been hearing a lot in the last year is that due to the hype around regenerative agriculture, there's a lot of new fancy websites coming up with consultants which can teach, but they actually don't really know what they're doing. And there's a lot of really good consultants which are very hard to find because they don't have fancy websites. So what we started building is a farmer-backed consultant database where we essentially have consultants which are verified by farmers from us and recommended to us. And then once they have consulted farmers through us again, they get another verification because we talk with the farmer afterwards how it was. So that we have a better chance of giving farmers the custom-made support that they need for transitioning because, as we know, it's very context-specific and the general principles are nice, but they're not going to help farmers to see how it works in their individual context. Okay, that's fascinating. And I, I think you've started talking a bit about my introducing my next question, which is, you know, here in the Congress, we've talked a lot about scaling regenerative agriculture. Yeah. And we've heard the opinions of many different players, uh, including uh, um, companies that are leading the industry and the corporate uh, uh, players inside the food industry. And so I would love to get your take yeah. um, on, you know, what does regenerative agriculture need to scale? What's the feedback that you're getting from your community of 600 farmers? Yeah. I would say the, the core point is we need to put the sexy back into farming. So the core issue that we are seeing and the biggest demographic that we're seeing of farmers which are transitioning is age, which is very logical, right? Like if you're in your 50s or you're in your 60s and you've been doing something for 30 years and then you have to admit that this was wrong and that you need to change your practices, you're not going to do this and you're not going to want to do this and you're not going to want to hear this or to even accept this, which totally makes sense. But what is the average age of farmers in the European Union? 56 years. Mm. And the reason for that is that it's just not attractive to live on the farm because it's, farmers don't get a lot of reward in society and it's just not a profession which people want to do. So we need to look at how do we make it attractive again for young people to go into farming, to take over the farms of their parents and then we can talk to them and we can show them the way towards regenerative agriculture and they will be a lot more open to this and they will be the ones which will be driving the change. Okay, that's very nice. And how do you, how do you plan on how can we make farming more sexy again, as, as you're saying? I think there's, a, there's several parts which are coming into this. The one is definitely around storytelling and stuff that we're trying to do with climate farmers and uh, with our social media, for example. And it's just giving more recognition to farmers again. Another part also comes around, which is, I think, very interesting, bringing culture back to the countryside. Because one of the reasons why people also don't want to be on farms and why we want to be in cities is because we want culture, we want community. So we need to revive those communities and we need to make it attractive again to live on the countryside. And then, of course, we also need to make it financially interesting again, right? I was speaking here with two farmers, which by their parents were told, you should not take over the farm. 
because they are already financially with their back against the wall and that is just not a bright future to look out for right so we need to start paying premium and we need to pay especially farmers which have positive ecosystem services right because that is the issue that we're having right now that farmers which are farming industrial and which are having a negative impact on the planet get the same amount of money for their yield than farmers which are turning regeneratively and are having so many positive benefits ranging from biodiversity over carbon storage to water storage. Okay, and I was hearing you speak a lot as well earlier on together in the corridors about how um, transition finance is vital to be able to support the farmers in the regenerative transition. So that yeah. going a bit beyond a premium to, to, to continually farm regeneratively, there's actually quite a high cost and a high risk yeah. around the, the, uh, the, the transition. So uh, could you tell us a bit more about, about that experience that you're having with the farmers, feedback you're getting there and solutions that, you've, that you're excited about? Yeah. So, um, I mean, one thing that we're definitely seeing there as a good solution is carbon plus credits, which can cover part of the costs. Here it's also, I think, very important to be realistic. I know that there's some ridiculous numbers being thrown around, and uh, I heard know from several of our farmers that they have been told some things which are just not unrealistic. So we're talking about one to maximum three tons per hectare, which is essentially, we're selling for a premium price of 50 euros per ton. So we're talking about something between 50 to 150 euros per hectare per year, which is a little bit of money, but it's not all of the transition costs which we're having. So this will be part of the solution. Another part needs to be coming from society, from governments essentially, looking at the common agricultural policy. Here we're talking about 444 billion euros, which are mostly given out based on the size of the farm. This needs to be given out based on regeneration and based on ecosystem indicators, which the farmer is increasing. And if we have that happening, then we will also see a very strong increase in farmers really trying to focus on increasing those indicators because they need the subsidies to survive. To put things in perspective, most of the farmers in the European Union are dependent on their income is 60 to 80 percent on the European subsidies. So this is the very big financial lever that we can be using here. That's very interesting. And are you starting to work with uh, policy and, uh, and lobbying and trying to get some change happening on the political side? Yeah, I'm very excited that uh, since half a year we have Mateusz Ciasnova. My excuses to all the Polish listeners for uh, <laughs> completely messing up his name. But Mateusz is a sixth generation uh, Polish farmer that has been transitioning his own farm towards regenerative practices and has been doing amazing work in Poland and pushing regenerative agriculture forward. And he's right now our policy and advocacy lead, which is bringing a lot of the documents that we are creating together with our farmers, such as the Regenerative Agriculture Manifesto that we wrote at the last conference and also the outcome of the next conference that we are organizing together with farmers to the Common Agricultural Policy discussion and to the European Union discussion. We were very happy to have the open ear of Christian Holzleitner, the head of the Sustainability Committee, who is working together with us in trying to see how we can push regenerative agriculture agendas and how we can make this attractive from a farmer's point of view. Amazing, that's really exciting. Um, you have an important role as climate farmers, clearly, and, and, and it's fascinating to see the development of climate farmers these, throughout these years, right? How long ago did you start? So my journey started essentially in 2018 with an interest in regenerative agriculture. Then me and my co-founder, Ivo Degen, um, basically decided in June 2019 that this is what we want to do with our life, or at least with the foreseeable future. And then we spent one year researching and speaking with farmers. And then we registered the company in August 2020. Amazing. And, you know, I've, I've seen you today talk with a lot of the people that are here. A lot of them are industry uh, leaders, uh, uh, corporates, uh, etc. And so 
I'd love to know about, you know, what do you think is the potential or where do you see the role of these companies that are here, some of them, for example, like Nestle, in yeah. the transition towards regenerative agriculture and if, as climate farmers, you are engaging in conversations with them and, you know, how, and if so, how do you expect to be collaborating with them? Yeah. I mean, in the end, we're talking about system change here. Yeah? And if we want to do system change in agriculture, then we need all of the different players to be on the table and we need to involve all of them. And um, for me, it was a very interesting one because I, I come from a background of water activism in my 20s. So I have been actively protesting against Nestle. And now I'm speaking with them on the table. <laughs> and I have to say, I believe them that they're serious about this. And, um, and I believe them that they want to do something. And it's a very interesting case there because it comes from the top. The, the CEO of Nestle, Mark Schneider, has committed 1.4 billion euros to the regenerative agriculture transition. So in conversations here today with them, we quite literally came to the situation that, hey, I have farmers that want to transition, they need a premium price for this, and now let's see if they will follow up on the conversation that we had today. But the idea was that next week they will send me a list of produce which they need for their products from what countries and for which they are willing to pay a premium price and for which they are paying to guarantee the farmers a premium price if they're turning regeneratively. With that, I can go back to our farmers and I can say, hey, if you are transitioning and you are growing this crop, Nesta will be buying it for 20%, 30% higher than the market value. And that is amazing because this is, again, part of what we need to make the transition happen to have farmers being able to get a premium price for a premium product, which is what we see with a lot of our farmers at the moment, which they're not getting. They're providing amazing products and they're generating the ecosystem, but they're not getting paid any cent more than an industrial farmer. And that's where the multinational corporations like Nestle and Danone and so on need to step in by paying premium prices for regenerative produce. That's fascinating stuff. It's really exciting. And I, I appreciate your, your you know, nuanced point of view and looking at, at them as a part of the solution and not trying to necessarily fight against some of the things that you may have disagreed that they were doing in the past. But I, I'm curious, and this, I'm going to ask this to you and, and because I haven't had the opportunity to ask it to other people before, but I'm curious if this increase, this quite significant increase in... in in costs that they're going to incur from regenerative agriculture, if they're going to just like take that themselves or if they're going to pass that on to consumers at the end. Do you have a bit of an idea of some kind of prediction of what's going to happen in the future? Um, I personally put my money on nutrients. So um, I think nutrient density from regenerative produce is a very interesting one. And I think the direction of what I'm hoping what we can make happen is that we can convince some of these bigger players that the transition makes sense and that it will pay off for them in the long run. So they are investing right now. Let it be 1.4 billion. Sounds like an insane amount of money for you and for me. For them it's like, ah, that's okay. And with this, they can set themselves up as having regenerative supply chains and then we will have studies coming back which are running already and we are involved in some of them together with EIT Food on regeneratively produced uh, yields which have higher nutrient density than conventional or organic ones. And with that one, we can definitely convince consumers again to pay higher prices. So I think initially these companies need to pay the transition. And I think in the long run, we will get private consumers to also be willing to pay a premium price. Because if you're not caring for the climate, you will definitely be caring for your own health and the own health of your children. And though you might be very well willing to pay a premium for a higher nutrient density of food. That's very interesting. That's fascinating stuff. So um, if you want to find out more about climate farmers, where do you suggest they go? Where can we find out more about your work? Um, that would be either on the website and uh, I'm not on Instagram myself but I'm told we have a very amazing uh, Instagram <laughs> channel so you can definitely find us there as well fantastic Philip thank you so much for talking today cool my pleasure thank you so much for making it this far we really hope you enjoyed it please let us know what you thought in the comments or on our website you can get in touch with us on various platforms and we really look forward to hearing from you